Welcome back to The Reeducation. Today's episode features an interview with the director of the Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Greenblatt. But first, a short monologue. I am Israeli, but before all of that, I am a dad. I have two beautiful children. And I'm talking to you, I'm speaking to you as a dad. And I want you to know, we cannot protect your children from pro-terror student organizations because the president of Columbia University will not speak out against pro-terror student organizations. That was Shai Davidai, a professor at Columbia's business school. He was addressing an impromptu gathering on campus to shine a light on college administrators that have been paralyzed by a war 6,000 miles away. Our last show focused on the ghouls in the faculty lounges and campus dorms. This show will focus on the decent people, the people revulsed by those excusing and celebrating the October 7 atrocities. And Shai Davidai is one of those decent and brave voices on campus, taking on the fanonists. In that clip, Davidai was calling out the empty words so many leaders of elite universities. They have been more concerned with not offending their community's cretins than with deploring their sinister activism. This equivocation is compounded by the cynical and empty appeal to free speech, which has been lacking at these institutions for some time. I'm thinking here of Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard. Our university rejects terrorism. That includes the barbaric atrocities perpetrated by Hamas. Our university rejects hate, hate of Jews, hate of Muslims, hate of any group of people based on their faith, their national origin, or any aspect of their identity. Our university rejects the harassment or intimidation of individuals based on their beliefs. And our university embraces a commitment to free expression. So what you heard in that clip was a lie. Harvard consistently ranks among the worst universities for free speech, according to the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. In 2019, Claudine Gay herself, when she was dean of Harvard's Faculty of Arts and Sciences, helped persecute Roland Fryer, a black professor whose research complicated the sloganeering of the current moment that says the police hunt black men. Technically, he was placed on a two-year administrative leave for sexual harassment, but the charges were largely debunked in a documentary released last year by Rob Montz, who persuasively demonstrates that Fryer was the victim of a witch hunt. He was purged because he challenged the pieties of structural racism and intersectionality preached by the new fans of free speech, like Claudine Gay. So in this respect, Claudine Gay's appeal to a marketplace of ideas, to borrow a phrase from John Stuart Mill, is insulting. And it reveals an obvious double standard. Does anyone think that if a group of Harvard student organizations issued an open letter that declared that the Charleston church where Dylan Roof went on a murderous rampage in 2015 was in fact the fault of the church itself and not the shooter, that these organizations would not be swiftly disciplined and denounced. And yet this is exactly what more than 30 Harvard student groups said in an open letter on the evening of October 7th, as Israel was still counting its dead and trying to identify the hostages that Hamas abducted. That letter began with, We, the undersigned student organizations, hold the Israeli regime entirely responsible for all unfolding violence. This is why Harvard's president served up a word salad of both sidesism. Her mention of harassment was so vague that it could please the Cretans and the decent people. Few days after the Harvard letter went viral, outside groups began outing the students who signed it on a digital billboard van that drove throughout Cambridge. Now, with that in mind, you might find it surprising that I partially dissent with an element of Professor Davidai's message to the parents of rising seniors who might apply to these elite schools. So I should say I deplore the bullying and tactics of the river to the sea crowd at these universities. But my hope is that Jewish students and all decent people on campus do not seek refuge from their deans and chancellors. These administrators are part of the problem in the first place because the social justice left has mastered the academic bureaucracies. They perform 
a kind of victimhood, even though they are at institutions that train our elites. And this performance is a weapon to silence anyone who dissents from their social justice dogma. For some time, this dynamic has been destroying our best universities, and it helps explain why so many undergrads and graduate students and professors today engage in an infantile and crude political discourse that dehumanizes individuals by only understanding them as oppressors and oppressed. So it's time to tell these cry bullies we are not your allies. And as Jews, we have to reject the rigged game that only recognizes anti-Semitism when it emerges from the right. We have all the evidence now we ever needed that the same people who drone on and on about safe spaces and microaggressions do not believe our people have a right to a safe haven, a right to a state of our own. So instead of asking compromised college presidents to protect us on campus, we have to take matters into our own hands. Now with that in mind, here are a few thoughts of mine on how to proceed. First, don't back down. The people who accuse the Jewish state of committing a genocide are liars. Call them out. If a pink-haired lunatic starts screaming about Zio-Nazis, ask this person if they are a member of Feminists Against Rape Victims. If a BLM supporter tells you Israel is evil, explain that Hamas is the Palestinian KKK. Second, try to peel off the soft supporters from the radical core. And by this I mean, don't try to persuade people who are already brainwashed, but definitely engage with someone who doesn't know anything about Zionism other than the convoluted babble they encounter in a Middle East studies seminar. Third, learn what to do in a fight if you are assaulted. The last Gaza war saw groups of furious bigots hunting Jews in Los Angeles. A great way to deter this tactic going forward is to give the assaulters a few black eyes and a bloody nose. Do not seek out a fight. Violence is wrong. But be prepared if the fight comes to you. Fourth, call bullshit on the victim. If you're upset that the internet has noticed that your Instagram is celebrating the mass murder of Jews, well, that's life in the big city. Fifth, understand that rage is an intoxicant. It's human to be furious in this moment, but do not lose your humanity because your adversaries have lost theirs. As I said in my first monologue after the pogrom, we should be able to have empathy for the innocent Palestinians that suffer in a war started by the terrorists who hold them captive. Sixth, for students or professors who have a change of heart or mind, do not hold their past against them. The challenge is to isolate the Cretans, and the best way to do that is to accept genuine converts. This is not the end of these dark days. I fear we are only at the beginning of what will be a long war. We must save our strength. Our people have survived for more than five millennia. Draw from the resilience of the Warsaw Partisans, the Maccabees, and Bar Kokhba. And remember that every generation has seen its demons who lust for our blood. And hard as they try, we are still here. Am Yisrael Chai. Well, right now we are really lucky to have as our guest the chief, the executive director of the Anti-Defamation League, a man clearly of the moment as we are seeing a sad kind of ugly uptick in anti-Semitism since the October 7 pogrom. Jonathan Greenblatt, thank you so much for coming on the show. Eli, thank you for having me. So before we get started, I just want to kind of on a human level ask what I ask of all my Jewish friends and acquaintances, how are your people? Are you doing okay? And, you know, have you, have you had any losses in your family or circle of friends since? Uh... Oh, yeah. So I've lost, I lost a good friend of mine was killed. He was killed in a gunfight on the first day, October oh. 7th. 
my son's camp counselor, his body was identified about 10 days after the, the massacre. You know, they were unable, I think, to. I'm not sure exactly what shape he was in, Eli, but suffice to say, they only were able to identify him sometime later. Hmm. You know, it's a funny thing, Eli, when you are forced to hope that your friend has been kidnapped. But that's right. what we were dealing with in that moment, like hoping he had been kidnapped rather than killed. I saw an interview with a father who, who hoped that his daughter who was kidnapped was killed because he was right. horrified right. So by what would happen. Beyond horrifying. And, you know, look, I have family who are deployed on the front lines. We have family in Ashkelon and Ashtot, you know, and other towns who have been sheltering. You know, the whole thing is, as many have noted, this was the bloodiest day, the saddest day for the Jewish people since the Holocaust. Yeah. And I will say that I think the world is different today. Yeah. I think this is not one of those moments where it's like, okay, we will bounce back and return to some mean. I will say that I think the world is just different. I will also say, for what it's worth, Eli, that I don't think... There has been, since maybe the Farwood in Baghdad, I don't think there's been a moment in the Middle East that has been more clarifying about the necessity of Zionism than October the 7th. Oh, well, on this one. I think, I think Hamas, which is, yes, a hate organization. It's a hate group. It's a terror organization. By the way, it's an accountable government, and we should talk about that. Yeah. It's a criminal outfit that specializes in smuggling. But more than anything, it's a deeply Zionist organization because mm -hmm. it has done more to remind Jews around the world why they need the state of Israel, more so than any of like the silly, you know, any of the silly commentators or erstwhile politicians or other people. And look, that's not a silver lining. There's no silver lining from this, none at all. Yeah. But I've never seen the Jewish, in my time at ADL, I've never seen the Jewish people more united. I've never seen their resolve stronger. And that those are, that's incredible. And then those may be things that we take away from this that will help continue to give us the strength to go forward. I want to just expand on that. Can you just talk a little bit about why this attack that was in Southern Israel is actually an attack on world Jewry? Because I oh, think yeah. it's an important message for maybe some of our non-Jewish listeners. So I have said before, that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. I've said it many times, actually. I've said it loudly. Yeah. And I know I've gotten a lot of criticism from some on the left, but like what you begin to realize is anti-Zionism is not just anti-Semitism, although it clearly is. It is a prelude to genocide. So let's just step back and appreciate that Zionism didn't start with Theodore Herzl 126 years ago. Zionism started you know, thousands of years ago when the Jews were first exiled. You can't open up, you know, whether you're a cultural Jew or an atheist Jew or a non-practicing Jew or a very observant Jew, you walk into any synagogue, you listen to any liturgy, you, 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 you pull open any prayer, and they all yearn for Zion. They all talk about a return to Jerusalem. I mean, it is, it is the basis, not just of our much of our theology as practiced, right? We're a mono, it's monotheistic, but much of the theology is about a return to Zion, a return to Jerusalem, but it is embedded in the psyche of every Jew. So what I say, first of all, is that whether you are, again, some self-styled anti-Zionist Jew, you're all Zionists. And that was certainly laid bare. Because it's October a safe 7th. haven for anyone who's a Jew. It doesn't well, matter whether you're an anti-Zionist Jew, if, if, the pogrom comes for you, you have a place to go. So that is definitely true. I mean, the Hamas, you know, barbarians didn't distinguish as they walked through the towns, as they went house to house, door to door, room to room, and butchered, and shot, and beheaded people. They didn't say, what are your, what are your feelings on the two-state solution? Right. Are you a Jabotinsky Zionist or like, <laughs> right, uh, right. Gimme, you know, it was just yeah. Zionist to them meant Jew. And right. Jew means evil. Jew means subhuman. Just like the Nazis, who also used to use the term Zionist in their propaganda, by the way, before there was a state of Israel. This is what I think we need to keep in mind. Zionist is a euphemism for Jew because Zion 
and Zionism is central. Now, political Zionism may be a 126-year project, if you will, but Zionism, it is the millennial commitment of our people. So I right. say, number one, why? to answer your question, why is this an attack on world Jewry? It's because this is an attack on this fundamental defining aspect of our identities. Not, again, as people who are observant or people who are, again, have a political bias, but as Jews. And so, secondly, Hamas and its covenant, written in 1987, makes it very clear that their mission is to murder Jews, not to create a viable, prosperous, peaceful Palestinian state, but to destroy the Zionist entity, as they call it. Again, remember, Zionist means Jewish. And to kill Jews wherever they are. And, you know, on last Friday, was it last Friday? Yeah. Ten days ago or so, we had this global day of jihad. Right. Like some of the Western commentators, Eli, have been translating it into a global day of rage. That's not what, you know, what the Hamas leadership said. They said it was a global day of jihad. And so that is very pertinent to this conversation, too. Because, again, if you're a Jew in Argentina or a Jew in Australia, you are implicated in this worldwide global plan to kill Jews wherever they are. And that's, look, I mean, I think that is a very terrifying prospect. But, Eli, it's also very clarifying. Which is why, again, I feel like in this moment, the unity of our people, the cohesion of our people, it isn't like anything I've ever seen before. Yeah, no, well, very well stated. So I want to I want to get to some stuff about closer to home and the ADL. And I want to start with some of these very graphic images that have been on social media. And also in that same, let's call it in the same category, other postings on social media from individuals who have let the mask slip. Now, historically, or I don't say historically, in the last few years, ADL has, along with other groups that have been concerned with hate speech, sought to limit the distribution on these social media platforms of both anti-Semitic speech, but also images that are really disturbing like this. So what is, AD first, maybe explain first, like what does the ADL do with these social media platforms? And I'm not coming sure. at this from some of the gross anti-Semites who, I don't know what, it, Elon Musk or something decided, I don't know what's going on with that. I'm not coming at it necessarily from that angle. I'm, I'm just asking, what does the ADL do with social media companies in terms sure. of trying to monitor this stuff and, and so forth? Super good question. So number one, like ADL's mission, it's 110 year mission is to fight anti-Semitism in all forms of hate. Right. And so like we were founded in 1913 and in 1914, we wrote a letter to a series of directors in this emerging industry known as like the motion picture industry, the heads of studios, I said directors, heads of studios, because we were very concerned about the time about Jew films, they were called, these really anti-Semitic, disgusting, silent movies that were being churned out by these early studios. So we have, so why did we do that? Because I mean, media is a vector and information is a vector in spewing anti-Semitism and hate. It always has been. So whether it was the motion picture industry in 1914 or it was, you know, radio in the 1930s when Charles Coughlin was doing what he was doing or flash forward to today with social media companies, we have always monitored the way the Jewish people are portrayed and always tried to hold accountable the companies and make sure they realize the damage that they could be doing. Now, I'll also say, we are ferocious advocates for the First Amendment. I mean, we're a civil rights organization, for goodness sakes. So we are not opposed to free speech. And, I, and I'll also tell you, I think hate speech is the price of free speech. Okay. You like your First Amendment, you're not gonna like everything you hear. Like, that is our bargain with democracy. Right. sure. So this idea that ADL is censorous, this just isn't true. There's no truth to it. But here's what I also think. And I say this to someone, you know, I think as you know about me, like I worked in the tech industry for years. Yeah. For years. I worked in Silicon Valley. And so there we learned a lot about the, the trying to create a frictionless world, trying to reduce friction. Well, you know, what I've come to conclude in this job is it turns out friction is a good thing. Friction has its merits. So what I mean by that is, look, if you want to go see a, I don't know, a pornographic movie, you should be able to do that. Maybe your 12-year-old shouldn't be able to see it. Right. So you should be able to go to a theater and see that if that's what you want. But again, I don't think the theater should allow a 12-year-old to walk in. And so that's a kind of friction. 
or even like a super violent movie. You should go see that if you want to. That doesn't mean I want my, you know, 13-year-old nephew to go see it. And I well, say I, this. Well, I understand be, that. But I'm well, saying in, in here's social my, media, though, okay. Here's my point. So yeah. in terms of social media, what I believe is we should create friction there and make it harder to find some of the worst offenders. And content that specifically isn't about, you know, expressing an idea. It's about inciting violence. That's not protected speech. And I want the companies, I've always wanted the companies to draw a big, thick black line there. Right. Now, I'll be clear, like COVID information, like that's, I don't deal with COVID misinformation. Yeah, I I'm hear not that. talking about climate information, but I'm going to share in all honesty. So what do we do with the companies? We consult with them. We share information with them. And when they ask us, we tell them because we track extremists, right-wing extremists, left-wing anti-Zionists, who I put in the same yeah. bucket. We track them all. So we don't tell them what to do. But again, if someone violates the terms, then I think the company should take action. And I also think the companies need to demonstrate some moral responsibility. Now, all that being said, to your specific question, I really struggle in this moment, Eli, and I would be lying if I said to you, we got it all figured out. Yeah, I it's mean, hard. It's hard. So in some ways, I feel like this is an Emmett Till moment. Mm -hmm. That's, I know yeah. you know the Emmett Till story, of but course. for your listeners, like Emmett Till was a young boy from Chicago who went down south to visit his family. He was accused of like whistling at a white girl. And this young black boy was kidnapped, essentially, beaten brutally, lynched, and left for dead. When they found him, his, body, his face was so, what's the word? mutilated essentially like yeah. he was unrecognizable but his mother insisted on an open casket because she wanted the world to see what had happened to her boy right. and that was one of those pivotal moments when we look back on civil rights in the united states in the 1950s and 60s that people attribute to the, the you know the white world if you will waking up to the injustices of racism and the jim crow south so flash forward to this moment you know this week the idf took a bunch of media types and you probably saw some of this yeah there's a great Graham Wood article in the Atlantic and showed them some of the footage that these Hamas terrorists gleefully, yeah. proudly took. Now, in some ways, I want these images seen. I want people to know of the horror that was visited on babies and infants and boys and girls, and grandparents. I want the world to see these butchers and these, as, as Minister Galan called them, these human animals who treated people like subhuman, I don't even know what, if there's a word for it. Because this yeah. is where anti-Zionism takes you. This is where anti-Zionism leads. This is the destination in, of the nihilism of anti-Zionism. Yes. And yet at the same time, I worry. I worry that images of, Israel, of dead Israelis and dead non-Israelis will be fetishized and used by these Cretans. And I worry that, because I don't think the memory of my friend Ophir should be something that gets you know, right. used as some political tool. And I also worry because the other side will take images, you know, look, there are no independent, I got a note from the AP recently, you know, I yeah. had, I've had a couple exchanges with them. I'm very frustrated about media coverage of this event. And one of the ways I'm frustrated is that they source information or they cite information sources in Gaza, Eli, like they were credible, objective purveyors of fact, sure. which is absurd and yeah. i say that because there are no sh real independent stringers independent photographers they're all agents of hamas i've reported from gaza i know exactly what you mean so most people don't know that and i say that because now these stringers from gaza are going to report on dead children there and look every every life loss is a tragedy i'm not minimizing it at all but i worry deeply that this propaganda will be used to foment anti-semitism against jews I mean, so so, so what what do you hard. what do you do with what, what what do you do with this question of of showing the images when when social media platforms contact you? I mean, what what's your answer? Truthfully, we're wrestling with it. Okay, I think that all these kinds of images should always be shielded from children. I believe that. I don't see any social merit to again my fourteen year old or my you know, 11 year old niece seeing this stuff. I just right. don't. Now, that being said, how do you shield it? You can make it harder to find. You could put like a, you know, just an interstitial on it. So you have to click through in order to look at it. There are different right. ways you could do that. You could have a warning 
So people who happen upon it. You know, the other thing that I would say, like I would really like to see these companies do a lot more to deal with, not just disinformation in the form of deep fakes and stuff, but credible information. So we come back to, there's no health ministry in Gaza. There's a right. Hamas ministry in Gaza right. that releases information about health. Yeah. And so I want that to be, I, I, when something is sourced from there, I feel like there should be a, almost a mark on it, a watermark, so that people know it's not a credible source of information. Right, right. Okay, now I want to get to a subset of this, which is I have seen, and I have to admit that I, it's been making me crazy, sure. a number of not people who would be in a mental institution, but accredited professors at universities, people who have some sort of platform and profile, tweeting things that I found just unbelievably more than offensive, just, you know, kind of heartless after this tragedy. I mean, I'm sure you're aware of it. There was a professor of American studies at Yale who, who tweeted in response to something about it's, you know, condemning, targeting civilian casualties, saying this isn't hard. They were settlers, like suggesting that it was completely legitimate or a military operation, an act of resistance, all of this stuff. If you wanted to ask me, I would say as a kind of, you know, it's a species of anti-Semitism in that you are explaining away mass murder of Jews. And yet I am grateful that we are now seeing the mask is off and it has caused a kind of that friction that you were talking about among donors to universities, among some student groups on campus. It's not a pleasant moment, but I believe it is a necessary one. So I want to get your response to this idea that Maybe it's there's a there's something salutary, I guess. Not it's not all good. I'm I'm unhappy that there are people who have important platforms who think this way, but I am glad that the mask is dropped and we can all see them for who they are. What how do you respond to that? I mean, I guess on the one hand, it is hard to be anything other than horrified. Yes. By people who are ostensibly responsible, and certainly people who are in positions of authority, who would celebrate or even just diminish the, the carnage and the slaughter that happened. So it is it is difficult for me to be anything other than like just dumbfounded by these people. And really, I mean, it's grotesque. Yeah. It's just grotesque. On the other hand, I hear what you're saying, which is it's also clarifying. Like I was saying to you before, I mean, about anti-Zionism. This is the destination that anti-Zionists are driving toward, a world yeah. in which Jews are reduced, not just to subhuman. I mean, all the anti-Zionist propaganda regards Jews as less than human, less not entitled to the rights that other people are entitled to, but drives toward this destination where they can be butchered, raped, mutilated, you know, at no, without any, not, with, with, not only without any moral cost, but it, it's like a, it's something to celebrate. So I guess it's clarifying and useful in that it shows us how deranged and disgusting anti-Zionism is. So I guess that's useful in some regard. But I would trade. Look, I said something else. Like I remember, I think we talked. Like I was opposed to the yeah. Iran deal. Yeah. Not because I understand anything about the half-life of fissile material. What do I know about that? Right. Or like, not that I had any. I never presumed that I understood the mechanics of the international financial system and how to apply sanctions. I mean, give me a break. But right. here's what I do know, that the Islamic Republic of Iran is the largest state sponsor of anti-Semitism in the world, and the propaganda they were pumping out and have continued to pump out should never be normalized, should never be countenanced. Yeah. Again, it's like doing a deal with the Third Reich. And so I think, to your point, I suppose in a one of the fallouts of this is this has totally clarified where the Islamic Republic is. And then the people, I guess it was a time when you could say, because many of my former colleagues from the White House supported the deal, and they weren't, they weren't bad people. At the time, I thought they were naive and wrong. Like, there's no more room for naivete. Sure. There's no more room for naivete. But I was thinking more of the universities. Like, I was thinking about the fact that there are lots, it seems that that the campuses and the elite campuses have been this kind of hotbed and that in this moment, and I'm not just talking about the Harvard student groups and I can have 
some sympathy for an undergraduate, at least. I was an undergraduate who had lots of weird ideas signing something. And then like, you know, I don't necessarily think that should necessarily ruin their lives, although I want to get your thoughts on that. But more importantly, I just think the professors, the vice chancellors, all of these administrative bureaucrats, in two ways, I think the mask has slipped. One, we've seen a number of professors almost express a kind of, I don't know, a, a, a gleefulness, a revelry in what happened, which is horrific and grotesque. But then there was the the both siding and the and the the slow response of many of the university pre presidents or the people who were there, you know, in the sort of administrative capacity. And that's where I want to try to get your thoughts. Is 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 that clarifying in a way? Well, yeah. Okay. Thank you for um, yeah clarifying yourself. So yeah, I think that we have seen a kind of moral corrosion at the academy for years. We have pushed back and tried to pay attention to the like the degradation of the academic conversation for years. But you're right. I think some of these professors, the guy from Cornell, oh, stuff at Penn in recent months, Stanford, the professor who made students, Jewish students stand in the corner, and on yeah. and on. It does show you that something is deeply wrong with an intellectual environment which condones and celebrates the marginalization of another people. Now, that being said, I'm, you know, we work, you know, we've worked closely with some of the alumni deeply concerned about these issues. They're my donors, they're my board members, they're our supporters. And so if you look at like that petition, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, Eli, but the petition that went up about the University of Pennsylvania, we did that at ADL. Oh. We did that. After okay. my conversations with President Liz McGill, and I did not feel that she met the mark in terms of what she needed to do to confront the anti-Semitism of the Palestine Rights Festival. That, by the way, the most ridiculous name you've ever heard. Sure. Um, so we have been hardened by the fact that alumni are now realizing that they have a kind of power to hold schools accountable. And not only a power, responsibility. I mean, look, the university is not, as you would know, as, and I would know as former undergrads, right? Eli, the university is not just a kid sitting in a classroom right. looking at a professor. The university is a community, and it has multiple stakeholders, including the students and the faculty and the administrators and the donors and the alumni and the kind of, you know, the local residents and whatever. And so I think for too long, the university has just entertained this fantasy that it's just about the professor and the student. And by the way, they have, they have glorified certain kinds of students and marginalized others. I'm glad that that's now changing. That needs to change. Okay. I want to I get to some tougher questions. As I'm sure you know, you've had some critics on the conservative side of the Jewish community now for a few years. You yourself are an alum of the Obama White House. And there was a perception, I think, in the Trump years, and this is not an effort to try to apologize for Trump supporters who have engaged in anti-Semitism, so I just want to level set in that respect. But rather that there was a there there was a sort of considered or at least perceived as a double standard when it came to some of the more prominent anti-Israel Democrats like Rashida Tlaib. So I want to just first of all address that. I'm sure you've seen Tablet Magazine has done a number of things like this. Have been critical of of you and the ADL under your leadership. What is your response to that? In that you you know you did the faces of the alt right report, but was there ever a report that looked at the faces of, I don't know, call them the alt-left, you know what I'm saying, of, of the types who, you know, I, and we, can, we all know their names, you know, I don't know, Electronic Intifada, Max Blumenthal, there are, there are a group of people who are, you know, as you said in the earlier, uh, you know, horseshoe theory, you know, proving the horseshoe theory, they're kind of landing on that same square. So I want to get your response to that. And I know this is a historical question, but like, what do you say to those critiques? Well, I think, first of all, we definitely do not play this left-right game. I know there are certain media outlets in our community, in the Jewish community, and in the mainstream media, who are infatuated with, with the red team versus the blue team, or right course, versus yeah. the left. I, I'm, super, I'm super uninterested in that. Okay. Because I don't think anti-Semitism hues to the kind of partisan lines that tend to divide our society. You know, anti-Semitism can come from a political space, from a religious space, from just a casual, non-ideological space. I mean, look what's happening in Brooklyn. No one's wearing MAGA hats 
when they're beating up Orthodox Jews in Brooklyn. By the way, people aren't wearing kafias when they're beating up Orthodox Jews in Brooklyn. They're just not. So I don't think anti-Semitism is like a round peg that you can snap into the, or a square peg you can snap into the round hole of our the American political conversation. But but you don't think that your organization may be focused more on anti-Semitism coming from the right or the MAGA versus some of the stuff that has been festering, well, look, at least in the grassroots of the Democratic Party, not the whole Democrat. Look, we've called out people like Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar uh, and others for years. And you can go look at our website and our tweets and whatnot. At the same time, you know, after Charlottesville, after Pittsburgh, after Poway, you know, the vast majority of violent anti-Semitism in the United States and certainly violent extremism in the United States is what you would describe as right-wing extremists. Now, by the way, these aren't like, this isn't Kevin McCarthy's friends, quote unquote. Yeah. I'm not saying they're even Republicans, but to deny the danger of, of violent white nationalism, I think is crazy. I'm not, well, I'm, not, I'm not saying to deny, I'm asking about whether, I'm asking about whether or not there has been enough as the same focus. And I'm, and I'm, I'm channeling here a critique I that it. I hear, you know. I totally get it. Like I just, it, and again, and just being super honest with you when I say yeah. that we don't, like there's no scoreboard at ADL. It's like, okay, you criticize someone on the right, now let's criticize them on the left. Yeah, what I see. We, okay. What we do is monitor threats and what we do as look at the propensity for violence. And, you know, we were saying we were concerned Look, we used we, we we said for years we were concerned about the you know the what's the word the kind of slander directed at Sheldon Adelson, the embodiment of yeah. the Jew, and then as it shifted, it became really focused on George Soros. She said we were deeply concerned about it, and of course that guy went into and concerned about things like replacement theory. And then that guy went into the synagogue in Pittsburgh. I mean, again, we didn't keep score, but right, that's where saying. that came from. So I just don't. I just want you to well, know. Can I, can I ask you about the Adelson and the Soros thing? Because I struggle with the following. Yeah. I agree with you that there are really bad faith actors that use that 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 sort of mask. They want to say, oh, no, no, I'm just criticizing this. But what they really want to say is Jews are the marionettes. But there's also, I think, fair criticism in a in a in a you know, in our republic that is not anti-Semitic to just simply say, these people have a lot of money and these they support this kind of advocacy. And let's see if there's some, you know, I mean, if, 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 they, if it wasn't about Israel or Judaism or something in foreign policy that kind of hits a third rail and it was like, I don't know, a guy who had a huge airplane company and, you know, wanted people to buy his airplanes and then, you know, put a lot of money into lobbying Congress, nobody would really have a problem pointing out those connections. So I'm just curious, like, what is do you accept that there there are legitimate criticisms of Adelson and Soros of that are not anti-Semitic? And how to how does how do how would you sort of explain like how to do that in a way that isn't that doesn't I mean I, I think I I know it when I see it, but I'm just I want to hear it from you as the ADL. It is a little bit like I know it when I see it, but of course there are yeah. legitimate criticisms of the late Sheldon Adelson or George Soros uh that are not necessarily rooted in anti-Semitism. Just like right. there's a criticism of money in politics that doesn't necessarily invoke right. an anti-Semitic truth. And yet, what we see coming from the far left, that like Sheldon Adelson was, do you remember the whole book, The Israel Lobby, the, the Mearsheimer? The oh, of course, Mearsheimer yeah. I, I, yes. I mean, that was like George, I'm sorry, Sheldon Adelson is the embodiment of evil. And right. by the way, that tracked, they came from the left, but that totally tracks with the white extremist language about Zionist-occupied government. Sure or Zog, which they've been saying for years too. Right. And the, 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 I see a lot of the Sheldon Adelson, or sorry, the George Soros stuff, criticizing George Soros for, by the way, the organizations that his foundation funds in Israel, many of which I find super distasteful, or criticizing many of the district attorneys whose racist he's back. And I don't agree with all of those policies at all, and it's not really my lane, but I don't agree with a lot of that. I think defunding the police, for example, is bananas. But what I would simply say here is that we need to just have the intellectual honesty to recognize that you can criticize someone's policies, but when you demonize and dehumanize, sure. when you kind of conspiracize, something else is often going on. And I think that's the case here. The other thing I want to say to get back to you earlier, and so what I just did, I don't agree with George Soros, some of the DAs and the policies they pursued that he's funded, with some of the organizations he supported in Israel doesn't make me an anti-Semite or a self-hating Jew. 
Right. But to come back, to, I want to address yeah. your point about the fact that there are folks on the right who say that Jonathan Greenblatt is an Obama person and Jonathan Greenblatt, the ADL is a left-wing organization. I just, and again, I know you live in a particular lane, right? Maybe let's say a center, center, right lane. Sure. Go look at the left. Like if you read their media outlets and they have the equivalent of tablet that you referenced earlier, if you listen to their commentators and pundits, they would tell you that Jonathan Greenblatt is a conservative right. ideologue and that, okay. the ADL, that the ADL is a racist, Islamophobic organization. Literally earlier this year, after I met with Linda Yaccarino from Twitter, this ban the ADL hashtag was launched. Yeah, that was on the on the right though, right? On the right. And a few years earlier, there was something called Drop the ADL launched. I don't know if you know about this now, but I by didn't... the left. Okay. Drop the ADL started in 2020. And it's their whole premise, Eli, is that ADL is not a civil rights organization. Okay. Oh, well, I didn't even know about that. That's okay. So after this, you can look it up and all your listeners can yeah. look it up. Drop the ADL. I've given them now more publicity than they ever had in their lives. So I, I say this because we get criticized by both sides. Neither side thinks we are we are fair arbiters. But the thing is, is I don't think we play for the for the red team or the blue team, for the home team or the away team. We play for the Jewish team. And honestly, that's that's, you know, I think we're like the referees here, just trying to call balls and strikes, not trying okay, to if, can I push back a little bit on that though? Because ADL, sure. you know, I, I the, the organization has a, a number of, you know, I understand you do a lot of things, but you know, for example, in the middle of you know, we saw in 2021, a lot of people who were really furious about COVID restrictions in schools and what they called CRT. And I went back and read some of the reports and press releases from 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 the ADL. And I mean, I, I felt just reading it that it was very similar to what I would hear from, I don't know, Center for American Progress or some of the center left groups that were dismissing it, saying it wasn't a real thing, that nobody teaches CRT. And that, you know, there was a danger in some of these groups that were, in many cases, I think that, of course, you can you can find a nut here and there. But in many cases, I mean, we know that these were parents who had legitimate grievances that were, you know, what they believed were kind of fighting against these imperious school boards that weren't listening to them. So, I mean, is there, can, can you maybe explain, I mean, do, do you regret getting in the middle of that? And how did it affect anti-Semitism? And I don't think we were really in the middle of the CRT debate. No, uh, no there, there, you, you, you put out a thing on CRT and saying like they don't teach CRT in schools, and well, there I, was another thing. There was another release that you put out saying that there were like extremists who were coming to these various school board meetings and things like that, which well, was, by the way, a, a red hot partisan issue at the time. You know? Yeah, we did see things like Proud Boys and Oath Keepers going to school okay. board meetings. But in fairness to you and the conversation. Yeah. Look, I will be the first to acknowledge we don't always get it right. We okay. make mistakes. We try to learn from our mistakes and kind of fail forward so we do better next time. But I'm not going to, I don't think it would be, again, like intellectually honest to suggest we got it right every time. I mean, and so we may have made mistakes. I'm not sure. But I would be the, again, first to admit we don't always get it right. We do the best that we can. Okay. I want to move on to another issue, which is not, uh, I don't want to make this seem like a, like a, a criticism necessarily of ADL because I think it applies to a lot of us in society. Okay, so it's Probably. it's a big it's a bigger issue. But after the horrific footage of the murder of George Floyd, there was a real wake up call across the country, and an organization which we know, Black Lives Matter, became had a, a kind of halo. There were millions and millions of dollars that were donated, and they were given you know a, a kind of place in our culture that was almost beyond criticism. We saw only a couple days after the pogrom, mm -hmm. the Black Lives Matter branch of Chicago putting out this horrific image of the hang glider with the gun saying pre-Palestine, that's the tweet, that's it. Patrice Cullors, this stuff has resurfaced recently, who's one of the founders of BLM, has said mm -hmm. horrific things about that was clearly anti-Zionist. Mm -hmm. I, I want to first ask, you know, has has ADL had partnerships with BLM? I don't know the answer to that. And the second question is, is this now, you know, are, do you have a, a different view of the organization now that we've seen their response in light of what happened on October 7th? So a couple of things. Yeah. So number one, 
So yeah, I think the whole country was affected by the death of George Floyd. Yeah. So there's sort of this moment where you saw some of the excesses of the criminal justice system. Yes. So that's number one. Agreed, by the way, 100%. I know, I get it. You're not, yeah. we're not. Number two, I think that the issue of criminal justice reform is something which, again, has fans on the quote-unquote left and the right as something that has been underway, and some of it has been a little excessive and some of it long overdue. Right. Like, again, some of the sentence, changes in sentencing guidelines I don't agree with, like some of the bail reform stuff. On the other hand, the excessive or the inequities in sense, criminal justice sentencing is very real, and the data all bears it out. So, number one, that's George Floyd a tragedy. Number two, it was a wake-up call. Number two, I definitely think there are structural inequities in the criminal justice system which demand attention. Number three, you know, back in, uh, it was August 2016. You, this, you put out a, I, I, I have it in my research, yes. Yeah, this movement for black lives, and we criticized the ridiculous things they said about Israel. And so we have continued, I think, to try to be honest and, you know, just like, again, reading, we believe, like, look, when somebody says it, we tend to believe it. We believe yeah. people mean what they say. And so when these people from the different strands of the Black Lives Matter movement or this official movement for, when they would say, we would always call it out because I think it's wrong. We never, to answer your question, had any formal relationship with Black, the Black Lives Matter Foundation or these okay. chapters. Never. Yeah. That being said, like the behavior you've seen from many of these groups the Black Lives Matter chapters, like in Chicago and in New York and in other cities where they've celebrated the massacres and lionized the kind of barbarians who did all these horrible things in Israel. I think it's revolting and disgusting, and I would never work under any circumstances with any of, knowingly work with any of these people, never. Because like if you deny my, say my one line, like a line that I often talk about, my staff heard me say this before, I'm not going to humanize people who dehumanize others. Right. I'm not going to humanize people who dehumanize others. And so BLM activists who dehumanize Israelis, who dehumanize Zionists, including me, I don't want anything to do with them. Not now, not ever. Okay. So, but by the way, we will continue to find ways to work with the African-American community. I'm proud of the Yeah, I don't want to make it very clear. BLM is not the spokesman for a hundred percent. Yeah, that's not like let's not go there. And, and by yeah. the way, the corruption and the like look, the Patrice Colors, I mean, I I you know, like clearly she doesn't have any understanding of foreign policy or global issues as demonstrated by the statements that she made in that interview that you mentioned. And furthermore, you know, I think there are many organizations who I'm proud we work with and we'll keep working with them because I do think there are there are deep issues with systemic racism in this country. And the black and Jewish communities have worked together to fight those evils for generations. And we'll continue to work with them, but we will not work with people who dehumanize who dehumanize us. No way, shape, or form. Not now, not ever. Okay. I wanna I wanna follow up on on something you say about not humanizing those who dehumanize us. And I think it's a it's a really good phrase. Your predecessor, Abe Foxman in my view, did something extraordinary, which is that in the heat of the 1984 Democratic primary, when Jesse Jackson was caught on a hot mic calling New York Jaime Town, and then sort of doubled down on it and, and, and I don't know, praised Louis Farrakhan, it was a real crisis because as you know, most, most American Jews have been Democrats and liberals, a vast majority. But over time, he privately, away from cameras, met with Jesse Jackson and turned him into an ally. So that by, I guess, the late 80s, early 90s, Jesse Jackson had visited a concentration camp and he had really become an ally of the Jewish community. And I think he had a legitimate change of heart. And so I ask all this in background to you as, is there a pathway for people who do get caught up in the moment like this and say terrible things that dehumanize Jews and dehumanize Zionists. But there is, is there a way back that is not just a matter of, you know, a pro forma apology, but is there, are there things that for ADL as an organization, but maybe Jews on an individual level can do, you know, after the, you know, kind of heat of the moment dies down to try to sort of say, listen, let's, you know, we live in a community. There is a way back. I, you know, let me tell you how you make me. I mean, I'm asking this genuinely. No, it's, a, 
It's a good question. I mean, I I think you are asking genuinely. I mean, I think it's a good question. So I try to live by a discipline that I yeah. that I refer to as counsel culture, not cancel mm-hmm. culture. Okay. Right. And so I have dealt with former white supremacists. I've dealt with some high profile public celebrities. I've dealt with athletes who have said and done some awful stuff. And I've tried to find ways to help them get it right. Okay. And most of the time it happens, you know, off camera, no, not public. Because that's how you actually get the work done. I guess like you're saying, like Abe did with Jesse Jackson. So what we do do that. Now, look, if you're dehumanizing, demonizing, delegitimizing Israel or Israelis or Jews, I mean, we see the consequences of that. Yeah. Like it's one thing to refer to New York the way that Jesse Jackson did. It's another way to butcher and mutilate elderly people. It's hard for me to... Honestly, Eli, I can't imagine a world in which I would sit down with anyone who celebrated what just happened. That's where I'm at. I mean, I understand that, but I'm just, and I'm not, I don't know why I have the answer. I'm just asking no, this no, kind of this question. This is a conversation. I mean, there are no, there are not always like hard pat answers, right? So yeah. I'm being very honest when I say I believe in council culture. I can give you a half a dozen examples of where I've tried right. to exercise that here. It hasn't always worked, like with Kyrie Irving. Yeah. So we had the situation with Kyrie Irving last year where he, he, if you may remember, he tweeted out his support for a film that was, to call it a film is a disservice to filmmakers. It was like a schlocky propaganda, sure, disgusting thing. And I immediately criticized him. And then I immediately heard from like his camp, like his family and friends. Right. And we tried to work out something where he was going to publicly apologize and do some stuff. He wanted to make a donation. Okay, sure. Uh, and I, again, I was willing to, because I thought there was sincerity here. There were enough people involved. I thought it was genuine and authentic. And then it became very clear that it wasn't. Right. And so I said publicly, look, I don't want your apology. I don't want your money. I don't want anything to do with you. And I said that, and honestly, because like I believe in council culture, but only if you're willing to engage in the process. You're, you're not selling indulgences is what you're saying. You're not, no. it's not, okay, that's a fair, okay. I, and, and so, I'm, I, but it's hard because like in the moment we're in, I mean, I'm still mourning. We're still trying to identify the bodies. I know, about. and we still have hostages, which is another thing that is very painful to me when I hear some of the criticism of the, you know, pending ground invasion if that happens. Yeah, I find it so amusing, these people, you know, look, Hamas is a hate group. Hamas is a terrorist. Hamas is a criminal outfit. Hamas is also the government of Gaza. So what do you want the Israelis to do? The government is committed to destroying Israel. We've seen that. They would like to commit mass genocide. They got their own little mini genocide on October the 7th. So all of these peaceniks calling for a ceasefire, like I'm just wondering what their grand strategy is. Like, I don't think you should call for a ceasefire unless you have a plan. And a plan cannot be to allow an organization and a government that's committed. We, we didn't say, hey, Nazis, how about a ceasefire? Right. And by right. the way, how would that have worked out? For, what if we had, what if America had and the allies said, you know what, ceasefire, keep Czechoslovakia, keep Poland, ceasefire. How would that have worked out for the Jews or, the, or yeah. the Catholics or yeah. like the LGBTQ community? The Roma, yeah, right. How would that have worked out? So the ceasefire crowd I just wish, I just wish with every fiber of my being, they would simply have, again, the fortitude to just think through what they're saying. Two steps, two steps, and just ask themselves based on what we've learned throughout history, how would it have worked out, you know, for the Tutsis after the first day of the massacres in Rwanda, in Kigali, if we said, you know what, ceasefire? Yeah, right. How would that have worked out? Right, right. I mean, it's just, I think it's depraved. And it just shows me that Jewish lives are not valued like other lives. Well, I'm, that, that, that we have about 10 minutes left. So I want to get on this, this final point, which is there is a perception, and I think it's grounded in some reality that we've seen in the last two weeks or so, that call it a social justice coalition. The idea that various minorities, African-Americans, LGBTQ, you know, 
women, you can go down the list, are all part of this kind of coalition of people who, you know, have experienced discrimination and oppression and that, you know, we have to be their allies. It seems that in this, let's call it the social justice left, the value of the Jewish experience, or at least the Jewish experience in this, is devalued. And I don't have the answer, but I'm asking you, is there a place for Jews and Zionists in that kind of coalition that exists, especially in campus politics, but, but you know, as I said, on the left? Well, first of all, who wants to be part of a coalition right. that serially and systematically dehumanizes another group? So I just need to say that right up front to this question of, is there room for the Jews in these coalitions? Like, what kind of a coalition is it? Yeah. If it's, if it's, if it's got such a lack of moral clarity, I mean, I don't want to join that club, that's for sure. Sure. So I don't mean, so I guess, I, again, we're just having a conversation here, and I know yeah. you're not being argumentative with me, but like, number one, I kind of don't agree with the premise. I think the real question is, what is the, le I mean, what does the quote unquote left do in this moment? You know, we've had this situation on the right with the emergence of this MAGA movement, which is sort of fascistic, where I think people on the right are saying, wait a second, this isn't the Republican Party that I knew. This isn't the conservative movement that I knew. I think this needs to be a moment of genuine introspection for the quote unquote left and like the progressive movement. I mean, you are not progressive if you celebrate you know, if you celebrate atrocities, that isn't, you know, decapitation has yeah. nothing to do with decolonization. And if you think that it does, look, my friend, you need to have your, you need to have your head examined. So right. I think a good question to ask, and I'm definitely not, I like, I am, I, ha I certainly work for President Obama, but I did like economics and domestic policy. I wasn't part of this whole like ideological i didn't work on the campaign i wasn't a supporter yeah and i just say that because i spent most of my adult life making money and in the business world but i think those who are kind of ideological soldiers those who are committed to these movements in the same way that there have been i think reasonable efforts for some on the right and like we see this with senator romney to ask themselves you know where's the party and where's the movement going I think there are those on the left who need to ask themselves the same questions. Now, I should say, President Biden has been rock solid and historic in his support of Israel in the last few weeks. From what he said moments after the massacre to what he said, you know, from the lectern to going to Israel. I mean, it's been great. And the R's and the D's in Congress, the leadership have been great. But again, a movement, a quote unquote social justice movement that, you know, again, diminishes the kind of savagery that we saw, I think it really needs to, it needs to be blown up and rethought entirely because it's just, I, I, do I need to say, it's deeply trending in the wrong direction. That's, that's pretty good. Now, I mean, because we do have a little bit more time, I wanted to also ask you, I've seen videos of Jewish students confronting chancellors saying, why aren't you speaking out? Why aren't you doing more? We've seen a problem on campus with Students for Justice of Palestine you know, for years now that will do these die-ins and then, you know, things like that. There's a part of me as a Zionist Jew that wants to say, counter-protest, you have the better argument. Don't play the game of, you know, why aren't you recognizing our victimhood? And I'm not saying that they're not victims, but what's your advice in that, like, what would you tell a college freshman who's Jewish and Zionist and loves Israel, who has to walk to his dorm room or her dorm room and see from the river to the sea marches and all kinds of other things that, that look to be just sort of rationalizing or celebrating this horrific attack on Jews worldwide in Israel. Well, I live with one of those. I have a, I have a fresh, I have okay. a son who's a sophomore and another's a freshman in college. So like, that your question is not an abstract one for me. Like, yeah. one, like it's super real. So I tell you what I tell my boys. Yeah. Like, now let's actually just acknowledge when I've said for a long time, you know, I'm the grandson of a Holocaust survivor, Eli. Yeah. So what my grandfather went through in Germany, I mean, 
what we're dealing with pales in comparison. Sure. My wife, as you may or may not know, is an Iranian I, I know her. Woman. We, we, we DM on Twitter, yes. Okay, so like yeah. she came here, what she endured in Iran, and then living, she lived in a refugee camp. Like, yeah. So I say that just to put into perspective, I think in our household, which I do think is emblematic of the broader Jewish experience, like we always try to keep things in perspective. What you deal with when you're in an uncomfortable you know, situation is a lot different than what your mom or your grandfather literally yeah. faced on a daily basis. Now, that being said, what we tell our boys is you should be proud, you should be strong, and you should be unapologetic. You yeah. shouldn't allow these pathetic people to intimidate you. Yeah. And you should take strength in your tradition, which a tradition which, you know, again, like we get things wrong. I get things wrong. We get things wrong. We have a tradition that, you know, and we we sin, right? Every Yom Kippur, we do the Alchet to acknowledge yeah. where we erred. And we're we're and we are we are, you know, compelled. It, during the days of awe to apologize to the people whom we may have harmed the year before, unintentionally or intentionally. Right. But, like, I tell my kids, like, don't you dare be intimidated by these people. Don't you dare be, like, you know, daunted by these people. And you should take strength and find confidence in your own tradition. Because I know that my boys and I know that our people, Eli, are on the right side of history. And I know that what we're talking about here whether it is their accomplices on campuses who are kind of useful idiots or it's the barbarians themselves, both of those kind of both of those constituencies, they are the face of evil. It yeah. is evil to tear down posters of hostages on a college campus. It is evil to put lights up on a building at GW that says glory to the martyrs. It is evil, evil to do a die-in. It is all of this stuff, and whether they realize it or not, doesn't excuse them from the action. And I hope all of them, and by the way, especially the Jewish students, because let's acknowledge it's not just Students for Justice in Palestine, although they are, as I've said before, these groups are highly problematic, and I've called them out. But like, you know, Jewish Voices for Peace, and if not now, and these other quote unquote Jewish groups, who certainly don't. I call them any- Jewish Voice for pogroms. Anyway. You should. That's good. Yeah. Jewish voices for pogroms. Like yeah. they should call them, you know, intolerance now or never. You know, yeah, like, right. Something like that. Right. Exactly. I mean, they're just awful. And look, even if the, the the young people involved in these groups or the old people, whatever, think they're doing the right thing, like that doesn't excuse them. That doesn't take them off the hook. They need to be accountable for their. But, lack but of I mean, I just want to drill down, and I know we have like a little bit of time left, but. It's okay. The way that you uh, hold them accountable, should it be as appealing to the administrators of the university or should it be by writing a strongly worded op-ed or starting your own, you know, newspaper or your own demonstrations and so forth? I mean, I I guess I'd see a distinction there because the same crowd that celebrates what is the lust for Jewish blood will tell you that if you invite the wrong speaker who might be pro-Israel, they, they, they feel unsafe. Yeah, it's it is a, It's like Calvin Ball. So I, I, I just asked this question, is that like, is, is the, what is the better approach? Is it to say, we demand the administration of this campus to be as restrictive of, you know, various things, you know, various expressions of you know, political opinions oh, as they are in I this direction? Or do we sort of say, no, wait a second, I'm glad you've unmasked yourself. Now let well, look, me tell you where you're. I, I probably idiot. err more on the lines of the latter. Okay. Like again, I'm okay with the Palestine Rights Festival at the University of Pennsylvania as long as the administration calls it out and condemns it. Sure. As long as no university funds are used to support it. Right. It's not housed in a university kind of building. Let them do it on you know on Locust Way at University of Pennsylvania if you know the open right. area there. I'm from Philadelphia. Like, I know. Yeah. Okay. So I'm okay with that, but I'm not okay with an imprimatur of legitimacy. I'm not okay right. with the school intentionally or inadvertently lending it some credence. So like, look, I think that you should allow speakers, even ones you don't like. I, right. I, it's a university. I don't believe in safe spaces. Eli. Yeah. I believe in brave spaces. Nice. I do. Yeah. But, but again, I also believe in friction. So do I think it's appropriate for SJP to have a speaker standing in front of the Hillel 
No, I oh, do not. They well, did I mean that. that. Didn't they? Yeah, the, the, all kinds of things like that. Do I think yeah. it's okay to have a to have a debate on a BDS resolution, of student senate? Absolutely. Do I think it's okay to schedule it on the eve of Pesach? No, I do not. Right. Do I think it's okay for JVP to demand that Hillel give them space to hold something in the like on their in their building? They can right. make that demand, and then Hillel can say, "Here are the terms of service for doing events." And if you dehumanize other people, then you can't be here. Right. Same way, if like someone from the Koch party, you know, the yeah, of yeah, of course. Party, came yeah. to Hillel and said, we want to do something here. And Hillel could say, here are terms of service. And if you dehumanize Palestinians, you can't be here. So, right. you know, like I think, I, I want to be clear. I believe in more speech, not less. Right. And yet I believe in friction because I think with the right amount of friction, we can ensure that everyone is is heard in a moral way. And I, and again, I also believe that people, like we should expect ultimately, maybe this is where we end this conversation, Eli. Yeah. We should expect our leaders to lead. And if you're the university president or the PTA president or the president of the United States, like we should expect you to have some moral clarity, right? And not to have to be pushed to show up and say and call it the difference between right and wrong, good and evil. And I think what I feel like so frustrated in this moment is again, President Biden's been great in this moment, but too many of our leaders have dithered and equivocated and just failed, failed a basic test of leadership. And I think that's something that we'll be talking about long into the future. All right. Well, listen, Jonathan, thank you so much for your time. This was a great interview and I really appreciate you coming on here. So thank you. I appreciate again. all your thoughtful questions. Thank you, Eli. Thank you. This has been The Reeducation with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.